So now we turn to um, one of the second big principles of faith, hope, and love. We turn today to hope and also to see how faith creates hope for us. Um, so we'll just remind ourselves of the basic thrust from 1 Corinthians 13 of the basis for this study when Paul says these three things go on forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And we know the word forever means eternally. That just reminds us that every experience we have of faith and every experience we have of hope and every relationship we have with love evidently goes with us to heaven. That's what my professor at seminary, David Preeby, taught me, and I have believed that ever since, and I still, every time I read this text, see what that is. So today, um, maybe some of you know Philip Yancey. I think there was a study here on the, on the books of uh, when the one thing he wrote is, What's So Amazing About Grace? And um, he has a little episode here that I'd like to read you about 1 Corinthians 13 to begin with today, if we could. Faith, hope, and love. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, his great chapter in love, each one old enfolds a paradox. Love involves caring, most, caring about people most of us want, would prefer not to care about. In Paul's words, love is patient and kind. It's not envious. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of the wrong. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Such a program may seem unreasonable in the kind of world we live in today. But not, it's not very reasonable where people act out with injustice and violence and meanness and revenge. By nature, we keep records, right and wrongs, and demand our own rights, and love does not do that. Hope gives us the power to look beyond the circumstance that otherwise appears hopeless. Hope gives us power to look beyond the circumstance that otherwise would appear hopeless. Hope gives hostage, hostages alive when they have no proof that anyone cares about them. It encourages farmers to plant seeds in the spring after three straight years of drought. Paul told the Romans, he mentioned some of the good things that might come out of difficulties. Suffering produces perseverance, produce, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. He lists hope at the end, instead of where I would normally expect it, at the beginning. As we fuel, that keeps a person going. It's the fuel. No hope emerges from the struggle. Of the it's a byproduct of faithfulness. As for faith, it will always mean believing in what cannot be proven. Co Committing to what, which of those we can never be sure. A person who lives by faith must proceed on an incomplete evidence, trusting in advance what only makes sense in the future. Okay. I promised you um, 
that we'd take a look today to begin with of John 4, the woman at the well. Remember, we read that last time. This woman who, uh, this story contains both faith and the first witness, I would consider her the first disciple witness in the whole New Testament. She's the first one who gets the story of Jesus and runs to her village to tell everyone that I think I have met the man uh, who is the Messiah. So it's noon and Jesus has come from a long trip. He wouldn't have to have gone through Samaria. It wasn't the most direct route from Jerusalem to Galilee. And Samaria was land that the Jews did not want to go because they didn't get along with the Samaritans at all. Jesus stops because he's tired <coughs> at the well to get a drink of water. And he asks the woman if he can give her a, a drink. And uh, she raises the question, why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Samaritans believed God's presence was on the mountain and the Jews believed it was in the temple in Jerusalem. So they had this conversation and Jesus says, and she says, you didn't even bring a bucket and this well is deep. And this is Jacob's well. Do you believe you are stronger than the person Jacob? And he ends up telling her that he is and that he has life-giving water. So they have the conversation about this. She first thinks it's regular water, and then she learns that it's the life-giving water that God gives us in, in the person of Jesus. So they have this conversation. I think you should have conversations with the questions you have with Jesus and with others about faith. It may be one of the most profound ways that our faith is strengthened and renewed and deepened as we have conversations about the questions, concerns, or affirmations we have about faith. And that's what produces hope for us. So the woman thinks she has met the Messiah, and Jesus says, the one who's giving you living water is the one that's talking to you right now. So she decides to go back to her hometown. She goes back to her hometown, and she tells her people, I think I have met the Messiah. He is somebody who has told me about everything in my life. Jesus answers the question about her husband, and she says, I don't have one. And he says, that's right. The man you're living with is not your husband, but you've had five other husbands, which uh, some who like to beat the law over people's heads and like to stretch tales that aren't gospel tales, kind of have said, and I've heard sermons on this, that this woman was a loose woman. She had five different men in her life. Well, there was a reason for the five different men. They probably died. And when you die, your brother is to take care of you or to marry you. And the man she has now, she's not even living with, is not even married. And Jesus still accepts her. Your faith doesn't happen very much without the acceptance of grace in your life. So she goes to her hometown and the people come to Jesus and they listen to him teach and they ask him if he can stay with him so he stays with them for two days. These Samaritans teaching him about 
the gospel and the good news for us. So this lady becomes a witness. She can't keep quiet. That's what witnesses are. People who can't keep quiet about the story of Jesus. It just bursts out of you. It's too important not to say. And she goes and becomes a witness. We have a sign in the church I used to serve in Wyoming. When you left, it says, Entering God's mission field. Your first step out the door here when you leave the church in the sanctuary, you are entering the mission field where you can talk about Jesus and do the mission that he has given you to proclaim the good news to other people to see where they are. So the woman at the well plays an important part of seeing how my faith in conversation with Jesus and whether other people is enlarged, and so is yours. And then your faith becomes more real when you act upon it and live it out and can't keep quiet about it. And you're moved to go somewhere else to tell the story to see where there is. So um, it's a big story for me in my faith. Right there in the beginning, the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter is this woman that we admire as being one of the first to be a witness for Jesus. They do it again, the women, guys. We got to get with it. Well, then I would like to slip over and talk about Thomas, who some of us call the Doubting Thomas. You remember the story in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. Thomas missed church on Easter Sunday. I always say if you missed church on Sunday, you might have missed a lot. Thomas missed the appearance of Jesus coming back to the disciples and showing them that he had risen from the dead. So Thomas comes in and he, he's told by the disciples that you, you missed it. Jesus was here. He appeared to the women and he appeared to us. And Thomas says, I will not believe unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands and in his side. Well, he comes to see Jesus, and we don't even know, the text doesn't even tell us if he puts his fingers in the holes in his hands and his side. But he makes the most profound statement that's made in the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God, he says to Jesus as he sees him. Now, I think the convincing thing for his faith was the fact that Jesus accepted him unconditionally with grace. It wasn't that he touched him. It was the fact that he had these questions and maybe even some doubts or concerns about his believing. And Jesus didn't put him down for that. He simply gave him more evidence. And that's how it is with us. When we become honest on our journey that we have questions or concerns or maybe even doubts at times, that Jesus doesn't put us down. He simply says, I think he says, like he says to Thomas, here I am. What do you need today to believe? What do you need today? I'm here to help you. I'm here to give you the good news and to be a part of my life, to be part of who we are and what that may mean for us. So Thomas becomes for me a model a model of being able not to be afraid to ask the questions 
and raise the concerns that he has about his doubts and his questions that he has. So Thomas is a sign of faith, but he's also a sign of hope. He moves from this business of questioning to having the certainty of knowing who Jesus is. So the days that are, I don't know how your faith goes. Did it start when you were baptized down here and it's been uphill all the way? Or does it go like this? These days are really easy to believe and then there's a day that I'm wondering, then there's a day that everything is good, and then there's a day I got a bad report from the doctor. And then does it go up and down like that? Always moving forward, but never totally arriving until we get to the resurrection. It's a journey. It's one of the most exciting journeys that you have in your life is to experience God in every day and every moment. In the 12th chapter of Mark, which is one of the alternatives way to you could celebrate this Sunday. We're going to celebrate it as All Saints Day. Is that right, Pastor? And, um, but in the 12th chapter, there is this question, conversation between the scribes and... Um, And Jesus, they ask him the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then the second one, which is just as important, is you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So they're asking Jesus this question, and the scribes come usually to attack him, but now they come to defend him and say, you have answered right, Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It isn't that the scribe has, but he's not far from the kingdom of God. How far are you from the kingdom of God today? You see, the kingdom is present not only when we die in the end and go to heaven. That truth is certain. But it also, right here, right now, now and then, here and now, it is. It's like God has torn off a part of the future kingdom of God and placed it in a manger in Bethlehem in the person of Jesus. So wherever in this life you participate in the activities that Jesus has shown us with his life, you have participated in the kingdom of God in the here and now. Maybe, maybe just perhaps, the most important question we could ask with what's going on in this country between left and right is to ask each side, how far are you from the kingdom of God? How far are you from understanding and having conversation with people that think differently and act differently with you? That may be one of the great ways in this day and age we have to live out our faith. And when you see the kingdom in Matthew 25, Jesus is really clear. He has this question when I, on the judgment day, and they ask him, where in the world did you see me? And he says, you saw me when you have done this to the least of my brothers and sisters. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was clothed, naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And anything you have done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done to me. So if I can't see 
the image of God in you, I'm standing in the wrong position. It might be helpful if I have somebody I disagree with and can't see the image of God in them. Maybe if I looked from my knees up into their eyes, I could see better. So every time we had a conversation with another human being in a relationship, we see that they were created in the image of God. And when we do that and acknowledge that and affirm that and live in a relationship with that, we got to participate in the kingdom of God in the here and now. <laughs> I ran into this guy. I have so many interesting people at the dog park. This guy found out I was from Wyoming, and he wanted to tell me not to vote for Liz Cheney. And I said, well, you know, I'm not of her party all the time, uh, but I deeply respect her for standing up for democracy, you know? And his last word for me when he left me yesterday, when I come back next time and walk with you, I'll convince you that you shouldn't vote for Liz Cheney. So we'll have, and so I'll have to see where I see the kingdom of God in our conversation with each other. But that's where it is to see where all of those things kind of happen. So today we're here to talk about hope. And Sunday is All Saints Day. It rests for me right behind Easter and Christmas. All Saints Day is a great day of hope. It's the day I acknowledge all the people in my life who have taught me the faith and who bear witness to the faith. And we can celebrate them and name them. Sometimes in the congregations I used to serve, we put on white plain sheets on the side of the walls of the church. And people would come in and they'd write their name and then they could list all the, people, all the saints who had influenced their life. It's not a bad exercise to know on All Saints Day to see where all that is and what that may mean for you. It's the day I remember the people who've taught me the faith really well. I remember my father's wake where he said, I have to look after people who are less than me. I have to help the poor and the hungry. And then he said to me, you know, the hymn that I listened to most of all when I was dying of cancer was every night, Tennessee Ernie Ford's How Great Thou Art. And you may want to, as you review your understanding of faith and hope to this point, begin to look at the hymns in the hymnal. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. My hope is nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the list goes on, doesn't it? The hymns can tell us about the issues of faith and the big things of faith, hope, and love in our life. One of the books that I read right after I got out of seminary that Dick Hoosflown, the assistant to the bishop, gave to all of us new seminarians. And not only did he give us the book, he says, I'm going to be back in a month and we're going to have a discussion about it. It's still on my bookshelf. Fifty-five years later, I dust it off every once in a while. It's Victor Fra Frankl's book, What is the Meaning of Life? 
Victor Frankl was a Swiss psychiatrist, a Jew, who was at Auschwitz, where millions of Jews went to the furnaces and died. He was a survivor. His book is, How Do You Survive Such Things With Your Faith in a Concentration Camp Until You're Waiting for the Day Maybe of Your Name and Number to Be Called? Franco imagined every day what he was going to do when he got out and gave his first lecture on the meaning of life. He lived with this hope. He lived with the future that he had with God and he brought into the present. And he said those who survived at the concentration camp and stayed healthy were those who had a picture of how the future, the promises of God, come into the present to give you meaning. It was those people who shared a piece of bread with a person sitting next to him that seemed to be the strongest and kept their faith alive and kept hope going for others. It was those who encouraged others to pray on a daily basis and to be a part of their life. There is this marvelous story of a, a man who, uh, he was a Jewish rabbi now. Years later, he um, died in England. One of the famous, I don't, can't remember his name, rabbis in England. Thomas Long, the great teacher of preachers and a mentor of mine in a deep way ends up saying this story. When the rabbi died, they printed in his obituary this story. He was about eight years old and he was in Auschwitz with his parents, his mom and his dad. And his dad found a piece of string and asked where the butter was that they had and took the butter and ran it down the string to make a wick. His son at eight got so upset with him, he said, you hardly have anything to eat, and you're wasting that on making a candle. He turned to his son, and he said, you can live without food for about five days. You can only live one day without hope. And he lit the Sabbath candle. And they praised and worshiped God. You can live five days without food. But only one day without hope. Every day of your hope somewhere along the way you're imagining a life with God forever. Only one day can you live without receiving the forgiveness of sins to keep yourself centered and healthy. Only one day can you really be alive without thinking about how you can bear witness to who Jesus is for you. That's in my faith memory. Five days without food, one day 
without hope. It's essential for us. It's a part of our life to see where all of those kinds of things are for us. The story is told of a boy that was eight years old and he had to go to the dentist and they had to take out some teeth and they had to dig him out and they had to put him semi out. And at eight, he was scared spitless. You can imagine. I'm going to be knocked out and they're going to dig a tooth out of me. The nurse was there and she said to him, I don't want you to worry. I'm going to be here with you all the time. And when you wake up, I'll be right here beside you. He comes out, and there she is, as he, she promised, right there beside him. He's an MI. He works for rescue squads now. Thirty-some years later, he's called to a wreck. A pickup has crashed. It's flipped over. The driver is on the bottom of it. They're trying to cut into him, cut into the truck to get him out. And he's screaming that he's scared he's going to die. Well, this boy at age eight remembered when he thought he might die. So he crawls down under the pickup and stays with the man while the gasoline drips on them. And they're cutting with their saw to get him out. Any moment a spark can burn him up. And he says the same words to him as the nurse said to him at age eight, I'm going to be with you. God sent me to be with you. It's going to be all right. And as they get out, the guy in the pickup said, you're crazy. We both could have blown up. He says, I have no choice. I have the pull of the love of God that I need to share and I had no choice. Such is the power of hope. Such is the strength of faith. Such is these three great ingredients of faith, hope, and love. They transform us. They change us. The key is, when we don't just talk about faith, and don't just define hope, but when we live them out, it's when we're an instrument of hope whose life is centered in grace. Your prayer every day when you get up is, how can I be an instrument of grace in the people I meet today? How can I show people what it means to believe in this Jesus? How can I show them that God keeps his promises. You know that. God keeps all of his promises. He said when they were in Egypt of slavery, I'm going to lead you out of here to the promised land. 
Well, he kept the promise. They went to the Red Sea. It took him a number of years in the wilderness to wonder. But they got there and he kept his promise. And then in heaven, I can love this picture. I get it from 1 John, the first chapter. When John, where John reminds us that Jesus was with God from the beginning. And I have this picture in my faith imagination that God and Jesus are in heaven and the wind's blowing. <laughs> the spirits that are all there. And God's looking and says to them, he says to his son, you know, we've got to do something different. These Ten Commandments don't seem to be doing it. And all the laws we've given them, they just don't seem to be doing it. They're missing out on life and where that is. Maybe they'll get it better if we become one of them. And rather than sending them some laws on stone, we come in person, face to face. So he sends Jesus down to them. I just, I see him kind of going down. He's, he's there in heaven. He's a white-haired young boy, about 21 at this time. That's my imagination. Your faith may say it differently. That's okay. And um, so he goes down through these whole series of webs. He comes a little larva. A mother ant named Mary comes out and gives birth to him. Before all these ants left heaven where were people, God took them. Can you imagine? He took you in his hands and he pulls off your wings, your wings of freedom. And you go down there and you're supposed to live by this gospel. Well, when Jesus dies and rises, the people that follow him in this metaphor have grown their wings back because they have something significant to believe in. And so Jesus becomes one of us. You know, do you remember the days back in the, when you had your kids in the 50s and 60s and it was Christmas and you bought these toys and things from Japan and you had to put them together and it was Christmas morning and the kids couldn't wait till you put the toy together? And you wish so, somehow that somebody from Japan would have come with Santa Claus and helped you put it together. And you're sitting there trying to put it together to see where all of that kind of stuff is. So God decided, I can teach you better in person. And he sent Jesus. And you can participate in Jesus in the kingdom in the here and now when you do the things that Jesus did when he was here, and your life will be deeper and richer and more powerful and more meaningful than you could ever imagine. So remember this, God keeps his promises. He said he'd come and show us signs of the kingdom. Did Jesus do that? He said he'd come and die on the cross and he did that. He said he'd rise to the dead, and in three days he came back and did that. He said, go to Galilee, go to your hometown, and there you'll see the risen Christ. And he did that. And now he says to us that I am with you always. You can bet and, and build your life upon 
the promises of God and what that may mean for all of us. So it's going to be All Saints Day. And um, you, um, I think it's what page, I have to get my glasses on, I want to read you this from Philip Yancey. This is a really good book. It talks about reaching for the invisible God. Can't see him, but how can you find him? Yancey's a good writer. On page 83, my notes say, we will read about one of the saints that he ran into to strengthen his hope and deepen his faith. I have visited Calcutta, India, Yancey says, a place of poverty, death, and human problems. There the nuns trained by Mother Teresa serve the poorest, most miserable people on the planet. Half-dead bodies packed up on the streets of Calcutta. The world stands in awe at the sisters' dedication and the results of their ministry. But something about these nuns oppresses me even more than their sincerity. If I tackle such a daunting project, would likely be scurrying about taxing, faxing press releases to donors, going out and raising resources, grabbing some tranquilizers, grasping a way to cope with the mounting depression, but not these nuns. Their sincerity traces back to what takes before their day, day's work begins. At four o'clock in the morning, long before the sun, the sisters rise, awakened by a bell and the call, let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God, they reply. Dressed in white as a tear, they file into the chapel where they sit on the floor Indian style and pray and sing together before meeting the first client of the day. They immerse themselves in worship and the love of God before they go to the streets. I sense no place in the sisters who run the home for dying and dispensed in Calcutta. I see concerns and passions yet, but no obstacles over which they do not get done. In fact, early on their work, Mother Theresa instated a rule that the sisters take Thursday's days off for prayer and rest. You can't do this work without a day of prayer and rest. The work will always be there, but if you do not rest and pray, we will not have the presence to do the work, she explains. These sisters not working to complete our a caseload sheet for some social service agency, they are working for God. They begin their day with God, they end their day with God. Back in the chapel for the night prayers and everything in between, they present an offering to God. God alone determines their worth and measures their success, no one else. 
When life's worth was threatened, St. Ignatius of Iloa was asked what he would do if Pope John IV dissolved the Society of Jesus, to which, and yet I found that even if I get only half an hour of calmness in an otherwise, oh, I wrecked the wrong page, I'm sorry, and devoted his energy and gifts, he replied, I would pray for 15 minutes and then I would not think about it again. I cannot pretend to do anything to change the attitude of Ignatius or Mother Teresa's nuns. I admire them, even revere them, and pray that someday I will attain something like this holy simplicity they embody. From now I can all muster is a daily process of centering my life on God. You do that? You begin your day by centering your life on God? I want my life to be integrated in the one true reality of a God who knows everything about me and desires for me only good. I want to view all the distractions of my day from the perspective of eternal life. I want to abandon myself to a God who can elevate me beyond the tyranny of myself. I will never be free of evil or distractions, but I pray that I can be free from anxiety and unrest that the crowd in them has. In the morning, I ask grace to live for God alone. And yet when the phone rings, the message strokes my ego. Or when I open a letter from an irate member, I find myself slipping back, tumbling back. I sense my need for transformation and keep going on because the sense is the one sure basis of potential change. I need the motion of grace in my life. Well, who are the folks who in your life on this All Saints Day become examples for you to thank God for the saints who touched your life? We can't just be entertained by Mother Teresa. We need to be transformed. Maybe perhaps Marcus Borg was right in one of his books, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. My goal every day that I get up out of life, he says, is to begin the day with God and to ask him to transform me so I can be a person who lives by promise, faith, hope, and love. Okay, now let's shift gears. Um, I want to move to what we call a realized eschatological faith. Eschatology is a word, a big word, for the last things. Death and eternal life. Got me? And how do we realize that in the presence here and now? I believe it's present really in Scripture for us. And... Um, I will go to my two favorite texts in the book that I occasionally look at. That's the book of Revelation. Don't be afraid of it. Luther didn't put it very high in his list. 
But I've found some verses and things that just are life-giving to me. Matter of fact, sometimes they're the favorite used verses and stories I use for my funerals. The first comes to the seventh chapter of Revelation, the ninth verse. So you can read this when you get home and think the pastor didn't make it up, okay? After the list, I looked, and there was an enormous crowd. No one could count all the people. They were from every race, tribe, and nation, and language. And they stood in front of the throne of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. They called out in a loud voice, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. Then they threw themselves face down in the front of the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders asked me, Who in the world are these people dressed in white robes? And where did they come from? I don't know, sir. You do, I answered. He said to me, These are the people who have come safely through the terrible persecution. They have had their robes washed and made white with the blood of the Lamb. This is why they stand before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will protect protect them with his presence. Never again will they hunger or thirst or or sun or scorching heat will burn them. Because the lamb who is the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the spring of the life-giving water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There was a crowd so enormous that they couldn't count them all. That's not just a picture of how it will be an end time. That's how the end time comes into the now to give us hope. The Lamb, Jesus, comes to forgive us. He comes to give us hope. He comes to offer us forgiveness and love and hope every day of his life. We received it in our baptism. We receive it again when we come here in Holy Communion. And every time we hear the good news of the gospel, we will hear it again and again and again. I need to hear it every day. And then I'll read the other verse, chapter 21 in Revelation. I thought I had this marked. There it is. The title is The New Heaven and the New Earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth disappeared, and the sea vanished. The sea is the place of chaos. In the book of Genesis, where the sea is present is chaos. So when the sea vanishes, chaos vanishes when the new world comes. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared and ready like a bride dressed to meet her husband. 
I heard a loud voice speaking, speaking from the throne. Now God's home is with humankind. Don't ever forget that. God's home is with humankind. God's home is with us. He was with them, and they shall be with his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There will be no more death or grief or crying or pain. The old things have disappeared. And the one who sits on the throne says, And now I make all things new. He also said to me, Write these because these words are true and can be trusted. And he said, It is done. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To anyone who will thirsty, I will give them the right to drink from the spring of the water of life without paying for it. Whoever wins the victory will receive this from me. I will be their God, and they will be my children. That picture of God making a new heaven and a new earth happens every day in our life. That future picture of what's going to happen at the end comes into the now. Paul reminds us in our baptism that we daily die to my old self and rise to the new Christ. Baptism doesn't just happen when a baby comes to the fount. It happens every day of your life. Every day of my life, all of my old self and sinfulness dies. And I have a new beginning and a fresh start. Good Friday and Easter happen every day of my life. That's the rhythm of my life. That's the rhythm of my baptism. And when I get depressed and thinks things are going to hell in a handbasket in the world, that's not what's going to hell in a handbasket in my faith. My faith is a chance that every day God's going to make me a new being. And I live for the day when it will come permanently with me and I will be with him forever. But I get to experience that, as Paul Tillich says, in the here and now, now and then. Not 24-7. But if we pay attention with our faith and we've got our hope turned up by grace, we will see those events and those places where God comes alive for us. And maybe it's the picture in your imagination that you're in the Holocaust and your dad takes out a string and takes the butter and makes a candle and lights it because you can only live one day without hope. You can live five days without food. I cannot live with one day without Jesus being the center of my life. Man, we have lots of stuff to center and focus our life on, don't we? And this God never gives up with us. I 
didn't deal with it last week, so I'll deal with it right now before we open up for questions. When did you first learn John 3.16? I think I was in first grade, and I came to Sunday school, and Mrs. Rookdashel, 37 years of teaching kids, you have to have a special soul to do that said, uh, you have four weeks to learn this verse, and you're going to memorize it. You're going to stand up here and say it in class, and then when the class has got it down, we're all going before the church so you can show them what they need to do. God's going to use you as teachers for all these adults. Well, I thought it was really, really a lot. For God so loved the world, and I went on and on. And then my mom said, you have to say it three times before we say our prayers at night. And then my dad says, what's that scripture verse you're supposed to say? And you have to have that after we have blessing at supper time. And it went on and on. And grandma came down there in that month and she asked me. what. So I had it down. And somebody taught me along the way. I don't remember who this was. It might have been my Aunt Marie, but I don't remember. They said, you say, for God so loved Alan Schoonover that he gave Alan Schoonover his only begotten son so that if Alan Schoonover believed in him, Alan Schoonover might have eternal life. That was a way of making it very personal. But it was only half the story, folks. The story in that scripture is about for God so loved the world. It's God's intention and his plan to save the whole world. And he's asked you to help him to do it. By the way you witness to your faith and the way you bring hope and love into the world, that's his plan. Now some may choose they don't want to be a part of it. I know that. But I also know that grace is greater than sin. Where sin abounds, Paul says, grace does much more abound. You have lots of resources. So I can't just say this as I remembered it. So God so loved Alan Schoonover. So God so loved all the people who think differently than me, who look differently than me, and who act. God loves them too. And I have to, if I, I don't have to like them. You don't just like people in the Bible to love them. You love them first because God first loved you. So there are some people that I don't like that I do acts of love for. So you have to know that it's limited for me because I don't like everybody. But if I love them first, then I might learn to like them. Questions, comments, feedback. What's the name of that book? It's um, Reaching for the Invisible God, Philip Yancey. If you want to deal with all the questions you've ever had and all the concerns and doubts you've ever had, Philip Yancey will tell them how they happened in his life and remind you what it means to be a fellow on a journey like Thomas.
Go, you're going to have a question? Yeah. So I'm just wondering why did he not appear looking like they knew him? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> Put it in your book when you get to heaven. <laughs> well, I can give you some things to reflect on about it. Um I think Mary is so overtaken by grief that Jesus' body isn't at the tomb. Have you been so overwhelmed with loss in your life that you can't even see your hand in front of you? I think that's part of what it is, that they're so overwhelmed with them. The one thing they know that they recognize about Jesus is that the holes in his hands and his side uh, the disciples, when he comes into the upper room, are more surprised about not being able to recognize him because the surprise that he has risen from the dead is there for them. Um, I think um, the business that he doesn't want to um, have Mary hold him, don't hold on to me because I have not gone to the Father, his task isn't completed until the ascension in John's gospel, until he goes back to be with the Father. His work is not completed until he comes to earth and lives his life for us, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends back to be on the right hand of God. So he can't stay with you now. So that's one of the other possibilities that you look at with that. Thomas recognized him right away, uh, I think, because he, he pictured the grace of God accepting him. I don't know if, if Thomas recognizes him. You recognize people sometimes, not by their face. Don't you recognize people sometimes by the actions they do? You know? I think. That's for me, that's the big thing. Um, that's because the big thing in Scripture for me everywhere I turn is grace. And it's God accepting Thomas, you know, I think, in that religion. And then he, when you see grace, you probably see Jesus. Or how about angels? Oh, what about angels? Valentine's Day, and uh, I am trapped 
in the pickup and uh, it's laying on the driver's side and I was knocked out and then when I came to, I wondered whether I was alive. So I, I see every, all the glass is cracked and I look in the rear view mirror and I don't see any blood and then I start moving my feet and my legs and my hands and I realize, okay, you're alive and you can move, but you can't get out of here. And um, it was laying on the gas tank and I had a 50 gallon drum of oil that I picked up for my trucker husband um, that was in the back of the, the bed of the pickup. Uh -huh. So um, I hear cars going by and I finally decide I should probably turn the key off and then um, I laid on the horn. So long story short, I hear a semi stop. A guy comes, he looks in the passenger window and he said, oh, you're in here, are you okay? And I said, well, I'm cold and I'm scared, and he said, um, here's my coat, put it around you, and I will call for help, and I will stay with you until they come. So they did, the highway patrol came with a puncture device and broke out the back window. And um, the name on the, I saw the name of the trucking company on the truck, nobody, from that trucking company would say, I wanted, we wanted to thank them. Nobody would claim that it was them. I think it was an angel. Mm. Well, when I got out of the hospital from COVID, I had um, three days of blackness and uh, this nurse came in the second day, and maybe I told you this story, but it's a good story. I like it. She um, came in and said, this is the last meal you eat in bed. You're going to get up and sit here at this table, and then you're going to walk over to the window. If you need help, you hit this buzzer. And if you do what I say you're going to do, three days I'm going to get you out of here. Every day she came to work, I was the first person she came in to see. She wasn't even from... Arizona. She was one of those nurses that came to live here for six months from Pennsylvania. You know, you know, I hear all kinds of stories about the hospital, but my story is it's full of angels. And then you know the story when I was age eight. My mother used to come into my room at night and say prayers with me every night until I got to age 16 and she stopped coming. If she only knew that's when she should have started. <laughs> one night we prayed about my grandma who had just died before when I woke up in the morning the first thing I saw going out of the end of my ceiling of my bedroom was the bottom half of an angel as clear as I see your face I held that story never told it to no one went to seminary and had to write my faith statement of what I believed 
And I didn't think at a Luther seminary I should tell him about an experience like that with an angel. I didn't know if Lutherans might let me in. It wasn't until later, when I was about 29 or 30, I told the story. But it's one of those All Saints stories that comes to my mind again to see where it is. It's a mystery, folks. You can't figure it all out. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. God makes the impossible possible. He takes the dead and brings it back to life. Don't ask me how you can explain that. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that a self-centered type A personality like me can have the Holy Spirit enter my life for moments here and now and now and then that someone might see God in me. It's a great, great mystery. Thank you for the story. I'll tell Yancey and he'll put it in his new book. Any other questions, comments? Thank you for that story. Uh, I would, now that you've said that, I will tell a story that my uh, brother's wife uh, was involved. Is that on? Just quickly, I've got a trucker story for everything that comes up, but here's the deal. In response, the tail end of her story, I knew the trucking company. I'm the one that went over to see John, the owner. Said, John, you know where your trucks were, tell me. John wouldn't go to the, he wouldn't even look it up. He said, it might have been one of mine, but they never would tell us if they even knew the name of the driver. But I believe that in angels watching over, my story is I think they watch over even groups of people. Not necessarily, we may all have experienced it one-on-one, but I think groups, and when I say that, it's a trucking story, shorten it all up. The only time in my life I was ever out of control of my truck. And I do mean out of control. I hit black ice east of Portland going up Beacon Hill. Goodness knows what that truck went through. Never wrecked a thing, but when I came to a stop, the RPMs were cranked up, the tack was running, 
My power divider was plugged in, which most of you don't get, but that's neither here nor there. The bottom line is, and I had dropped three gears. I don't remember anything. I'm on a two-lane road. The road is blocked. I've got it. I'm jackknifed. <coughs> the bottom line is that there were people up on top of that hill that didn't come down. I'd hollered on the radio. I said, don't come down. It's a sheet of ice. I've got the roadblock. Nobody could get by me to go up. Finally, the highway patrol came. I think angels were watching over every one of us that night because there could have been a bunch of people that could have been seriously hurt, if not worse. So I'm not sure it's always just just held to us on a one-on-one -on -one basis. We may have been involved in it and didn't even know it. Well, maybe the writer of the Gospel of Mark would say, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, it's about God's presence, if it's in angels or... And hey, folks, if you've never had that experience or you don't believe that, just wait. It's going to come to you. Some, it may only come on the day of resurrection, but it's going to come. This God makes the impossible possible. What keeps your faith going? What pulls you forward? What gets you out of bed the next day? Behold, I make all things new. If I get out of bed and I'm caught in my pits of all the things that are wrong and how terrible life's going to be and I don't want to be around, well, don't give the devil another moment. He already has too many. Anybody other comments or questions? Put it in your faith memory. God always keeps his promises. Even if you don't, or even if the people in your lives don't, God does. God does. Well, we've gone over six minutes. And I don't get time and a half for overtime. Let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us, okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.